0: Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Behrasli.
1: Breaking news. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has made his choice. Her story is America's story. Different from mine in many particulars, but also not so different in the essentials.
0: After much speculation and analysis, Joe Biden has announced his running mate for this November's presidential election. It's Kamala Harris.
2: As I said, Joe, when you called me, I am incredibly honored by this responsibility. And I'm ready to get to work. I am
0: ready to get to work. Her selection is being called one of Biden's most important and consequential decisions. And not only because his administration will have to confront multiple escalating crises and challenges. That includes an out of control pandemic.
1: We begin tonight with that grim new milestone as the nation tries to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Total U.S. cases have now topped 5 million since this pandemic began a grueling eight months ago.
0: A deep economic recession. U.S. economic growth shrank 32.9% in the second quarter. That is by far the largest quarterly drop since record keeping began in 1947. This is millions of unemployed Americans... ...a reckoning with systemic racism... ...and paralyzing political polarization. A President Biden would be 78 on Inauguration Day in January 2021. That would make him the oldest president in U.S. history.
1: Whomever I pick, is two things. One is capable of immediately being president, because I'm an old guy, okay? (laughs)
0: The implication is clear. Should Biden win in November, Harris could well lead the next Democratic ticket in 2028, if not sooner.
1: Kamala knows how to govern. She knows how to make the hard calls. She's ready to do this job on day one.
0: Should Biden win, how will Harris use her power and responsibility? Julia Azari is here to discuss. She is an associate professor and assistant chair in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. She joins us from her home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Julia, I want to start with some background. When America's founders created the vice presidency, they didn't specify the position's powers. What did those first vice presidents do?
2: I think that in order to fully understand this, we have to put it in the context of the early presidency, which also wasn't terribly well specified really until the turn of the 20th century, the presidency was a really different office than than we see now. And Congress did a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to, to government and policy. So the question of, you know, what do those first vice presidents do? The answer in a lot of cases is not much. You know, they it wasn't quite the same expansive executive branch that we see in the 20th century.
0: In the first three presidential elections, the VP wasn't the president's running mate at all. The post went to the presidential candidate who came in second. But once political parties emerged in the 1790s, this approach became untenable. Thomas Jefferson, a Democratic-Republican, spent much of his time as America's second vice president working to undermine President John Adams, a Federalist.
2: I don't need recognition, i
0: The system broke down during the election of 1800, when Jefferson and Aaron Burr received the same number of votes. The 12th Amendment, which separated Electoral College votes for president and vice president, was adopted shortly
2: after. So the 12th Amendment basically creates what we now know as tickets. So in the original Constitution, the vice president was the person who had won the second place, had won second place in, um, in the Electoral College. So as you might imagine, that person could be, you know, someone the president really didn't want to work with. That person could be Aaron Burr, um, who was kind of a strange political figure. It was really after the election of, of 1800, which was complicated, that... We have the passage of the 12th Amendment, which changes the way that the um, that presidential tickets work. And so that's kind of the invention of the notion of a running mate and of these two people on the ticket together. Traditionally,
0: vice presidential candidates have been selected to help balance out the president, either geographically or ideologically. Political parties have played a significant role in these decisions. How has the process evolved over the years?
2: So it's a great question. There's actually a lot of debate about the exact notion of of balancing, especially geographically. And there's, you know, like there's some research from the late 1990s that suggests that this, that balancing in the traditional way plays lesser role than we think. So this is really a subject where I think, first of all, A lot of popular conventional wisdom understandings are different from what some scholarship has come up with, and also where scholars don't necessarily agree with each other. Starting in the 1830s, you have these national conventions of of the sort that we're going to have in virtual form in the next couple of weeks, but they were, as one might guess in the 1830s, anything but virtual, right? This is really where people came and gathered and kind of took their local kinds of concerns and turned them into a national ticket. And those conventions would select both the president, which could be a very arduous and involved process of bargaining, and the vice president, which typically, again, given the vice president wasn't wasn't this really central figure, wasn't as as big of a deal usually. But that was often kind of an area where a faction of the party that hadn't gotten what it wanted out of the presidential nomination might push their candidate or someone from their region or someone they thought would be popular in a critical region. Um, And this convention system where where the delegates to the convention were really meaningfully doing this deciding kind of went by the wayside in the first half of the 20th century. And around that same time, around the time when we see the presidency start to modernize, the presidency become, the president becoming a really central national figure in American politics, and the president kind of being in charge of the party rather than the other way around, that's around the, the time of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s. And that's also when we start to see presidents take the lead in selecting their own running mates based on whatever criteria they they see as valuable. Still,
0: the electoral appeal of a vice presidential candidate remains a hot button issue, one that's endlessly discussed by pundits and the media. That's despite evidence that it might not matter that much.
1: It's a position known as only one heartbeat away from the presidency. But how much does the vice presidential pick matter?
0: Vice presidential candidates don't have as much of an impact on the outcome of an election as people tend to think. According to data compiled by The Wall Street Journal, from 1988 to 2016, the majority of polled voters said that the vice president didn't affect their choice.
1: I mean, the VP job, there's all these famous funny quotes about how it's kind of like the worst job in America because in the
0: Constitution, so undefined. You just sit around and wait for the president, something awful to happen to him. At the same time, the post has often been ridiculed. The inaugural vice president, John Adams, called it the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived. Franklin D. Roosevelt's first vice president, John Nance Garner, said... The vice presidency is not worth a bucket of warm piss. Even Biden called the job a bitch in 2014.
2: The vice presidential candidate doesn't really sway people's vote. And yet, you know, it seems really important. It gets a lot of attention because it reflects on the presidential candidate. You know, one of the cases that people often talk about is John McCain's selection of Sarah Palin. That selection among other things, signaled to some people that, that maybe McCain didn't have great judgment because he picked someone who he hadn't really vetted or gotten to know very well. There were there were a lot of things about her and her life and political profile and political skills that people in his campaign didn't know. She came off to much of the electorate as not being ready for office. And so sort of a reflection of, of judgment.
0: The role of a vice president has changed dramatically in recent decades, with VPs now acting as governing partners to the president.
1: We gotta get this over with sometime.
0: That's thanks largely to Walter Mondale, the Minnesota senator who became Jimmy Carter's running mate in 1976.
1: In the proudest moment of my life, I am proud to say that I'm, I've never been more honored than to be the vice president with one of the greatest men in American
0: history.
2: So Carter was this kind of outsider president from the South and serving as a governor and he wasn't he didn't have the sort of Washington insider connections coming into office. Mondale was of that class of people and was more of a kind of standard liberal New Dealer than Carter was. So he brought that, and he brought a lot of of policy expertise of Washington experience So he was seen as kind of a liaison in that in that regard for for Jimmy Carter and not just like a person that was put on the ticket as electoral decoration, but kind of a governing partner. And this was also in keeping with with Carter's general approach to organizing the White House. Remember, this is 1976 and they're coming off of Watergate. And there's all this suspicion about his secretive presidency and how much power there is in this, you know, imperial presidency. And so there's this notion that, that Mondale not just Mondale as an active vice president, but also that there will be this kind of active White House and cabinet. And this will really be a kind of cabinet government shared across lots of different people who will have a a strong advisory role for Carter. And of course, that's not really how it's not really how the presidency is set up. So that model didn't work all that well. But the idea of the vice president being an important player in the in the executive branch did kind of stick. Since
0: Mondale, vice presidents have continued to apply his model, acting as a high-level advisor to the president, presiding over significant policy platforms, or using the office as a stepping stone to the presidency.
1: The wife of the president-elect, Barbara Bush, will hold the Bible first used at the inauguration of President George Washington.
0: George H.W. Bush was Ronald Reagan's vice president before serving as president. It is
1: now my great privilege and high honor to present the Chief Justice of the United States, the Honorable William Hobbs Rehnquist, who will administer the oath of office to the President-elect of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush.
0: After serving as Bill Clinton's VP, Al Gore ran unsuccessfully for president. He then helped launch the modern-day environmental movement.
1: If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years. And the hottest of all...
0: George W. Bush's vice president, Dick Cheney, played a major role in shaping the post-9-11 world. I
1: looked at the world the morning after 9-11, and what I saw was 16 acres of ashes in downtown New York City on the island of Manhattan. I saw the Pentagon... Biden
0: took this process to the next level as Barack Obama's vice president. So another vice president that enjoyed unprecedented prestige and power was Obama's vice president, Joe Biden. And he played an important role in getting domestic legislation passed and particularly in foreign policy. How did Biden's vice presidency differ from those of his predecessors?
2: One of the things I think is really interesting about about the Biden presidency is he comes in as a second person on the ticket with someone who's much less experienced, much younger. And with as with any two individuals, they have some differing Policy ideas at times, and he kind of plays that that role, but also plays this second role and and kind of plays this administration spokesperson role in a fairly seamless way. And I think it's one of those kinds of political performances that we don't we don't think a lot about because you don't notice it because it was so strategically and and well done. And I think it actually is is an example of. Biden's political skills that it's kind of underappreciated.
0: What about Donald Trump's vice president, Mike Pence? Has Pence fit in with the broader evolution that you have touched on? Or has his time in office been as atypical as Donald Trump's?
2: There are times when it seems like Pence is a really important member of the administration and where he sort of is standing in 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 roles where he might have thought that trump would have been and you know late in the campaign when trump was was under fire in october after the the dropping of the access hollywood tape We saw Pence going to a bunch of campaign events and stuff. And I think a lot of people, myself included, thought like maybe he's going to be the nominee. And I think there's been moments like that throughout the Trump presidency where it's like, oh, Pence is going to have to do this, right? Pence is going to have to take over this kind of statesman-like role. And yet at the same time, it's not obvious that Pence is actually making, you know, is the one making a lot of these decisions or even is really a trusted advisor of Trump's. So it's not... It's not clear. From what I can see now, it seems to be kind of a mix. It's not necessarily a Mondale or Dick Cheney kind of situation, but it's also not a situation where he's really frozen out of, of the politics of the administration. I think he's a hugely important political figure.
0: Now we arrive at Harris, who will accept the Democratic Party's nomination for vice president this week during the virtual Democratic National Convention. A senator from California, Harris formerly served as San Francisco's attorney general. She also ran against Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination before dropping out of the race in December. A shakeup in the Democratic primary. Senator Kamala Harris announcing she is dropping out of the race for president. It is with deep regret but also with deep gratitude that I am suspending our campaign today. In a statement, she explained she did not have enough funding to continue her run for the White House. I'm not a billionaire. I can't fund my own campaign. For all the hype about Biden's pick, data shows that it won't make much of a difference to voters. That may be all the more true of a candidate who ended her own campaign before the first primary. Forced to
1: quit even before Iowa, hemorrhaging money and sagging in the polls. With a blast at
2: the billionaires now in
0: the ring. The Economist recently reported that, as in the past, Biden's VP pick wouldn't really make much of a difference in the election itself. Does this suggest that Biden's choice was more about governing potential than
2: actually balancing out the ticket? It's partly an electoral decision in that you want to pick someone, again, safe, someone who appeals to groups within the party, someone who amplifies This kind of idea of the Biden candidacy, which is returning to some of the values of the Obama years and animating the Democratic Party in that way. Uh, But at the same time, it's not just it's obviously not just an electoral pick. This is also the sort of selection where you can see Harris being a very active governing partner and kind of bringing some of her ideas to the table in some of the policy areas that she's worked in and kind of, you know, social policy and social support that she's advocated for during her time in the Senate.
0: Harris is not the first woman to get a major party nomination for vice president, But as the daughter of Jamaican and Indian immigrants, she is the first woman of color to do so.
2: If elected, she would be
1: the first woman vice president, the first black vice president. She would be the highest ranking Asian American in U.S. history. All across the nation, little girls woke up, especially little black and brown girls, who so often feel overlooked and undervalued in their communities. But today, today, just maybe, they're seeing themselves for the first time in a new way.
0: Not surprisingly, predictable attacks on Harris's race and gender quickly followed Biden's announcement. Many were led by President Trump himself.
1: She was probably nastier than even Pocahontas to Joe Biden. She was very disrespectful to Joe Biden. A new low and a day full of lows, uh, the president of the United States questioning the legitimacy of Kamala Harris, presumptive vice presidential nominee, to be president or vice president of the United States. They're saying that she doesn't qualify because she wasn't born in this country. No, she was born in this country. Uh, she obviously is qualified uh, to be vice president. She is a natural born citizen of the United States who was born in this country. Uh, but the president was asked about uh, this crackpot theory.
0: Harris is the fourth woman in history to join a major party's presidential ticket, and she's the first woman of color to do so. And that comes at a time when Donald Trump is losing support among women voters. And as we're witnessing, the United States is dealing with a long legacy of racial injustice.
2: How will Harris's identity shape the campaign? You saw this in the selection of Barack Obama as a presidential nominee. You saw this in Sarah Palin's candidacy to some degree in 2008. People do respond to seeing themselves on on the ticket. That is something that you know groups that are not used to seeing people who look like them in power are energized by that and do have a kind of a a response that kind of descriptive representation is important. I think what's what's critical to remember about that though, is that this descriptive representation, it's important, but it's sort of like a necessary, but not sufficient condition for policies that really address those issues. I think it is really important to have representation of women and people of color, that ideally this would not be concentrated in one party. But that is not on its own going to address some of the issues that have led to, you know, frankly, a lot of the frustration and anger that we see in the electorate. The thing with Harris, and we see this with Harris and we saw this with Obama as well, is that actually being from a marginalized group boxes you in a little bit. It becomes much harder to embrace radical policies. And it's not clear to me necessarily that either of these people would want to do that. But you're already perceived as more radical. And there's research suggesting that people perceive candidates of color as being uh, more liberal, even when they're not, or when their records are identical to their white counterparts. And I think that there is you do sometimes see with with candidates of color and with women who have made it to these highest levels of politics, they actually embrace, you know, these sorts of reform stances, these sorts of of what I call preservationist stances, where their ideas are very much rooted in language about tradition, or language about the Constitution. You know, they don't have the leeway to be someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren talking about systemic change, as Julia
0: mentions. Getting more women and people of color into positions of power is important to implementing change, but it doesn't guarantee it. And for many Black voters, Harris is hardly the ideal advocate. During her presidential campaign, she faced harsh criticism for her record as a tough-on-crime prosecutor in California, where she aggressively enforced laws that disproportionately sent Black Americans to prison.
1: Well, if Senator Kamala Harris rises in the early presidential polls, she's facing increased scrutiny over her record as a prosecutor in California.
2: Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president. But I'm deeply concerned about this record. She put over 1500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row.
0: That said, in one of the most powerful exchanges of the Democratic debates, she questioned Biden's support of segregationists.
2: I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, To hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country.
0: More recently, she was instrumental in crafting the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020, which aims to combat police misconduct, excessive force and racial bias in policing. What does Harris mean for a Biden administration's approach to the
2: ongoing Black Lives Matter protests? It's a great question. I think that this illustrates a couple of things. And one is the tremendous variety of different kinds of voters and priorities among Black voters, just as you would see in any other group. But I think that there are some real divisions that are relevant here. One is age. You know, younger Black voters were much less keen on uh, Joe Biden than older Black voters, and I think some of that is linked to different different kinds of attitudes. You know, one thing you probably see is different attitudes about the economy that are similar to the way that younger white voters and older white voters might might have different orientations. There are people in the African-American community and voting bloc who are very active in in Black Lives Matter and who really are drawn to that agenda, which is a pretty change-oriented agenda. It's economic, social, what have you. And then you also have folks whose political orientation is more pragmatic. And that was kind of the story around the support for Biden in the primary was, you know, this is a person with a with a tried and true record. This is a person who we know because of his affiliation with the Obama administration. And this is a person who seems like he could win. I also think that organization and political power really matter here. And so if you think about, well, who is going to be pressing on that administration in terms of how it sets its agenda? Well, it will, to some extent, be people like James Clyburn, who is really pivotal in Biden's nomination. But it will also be activists, right? It will also be activists. And I think this is where we can also see Biden and Harris as similar in that they're both kind of evolving figures. They're both people who who seem like they're responsive to political conditions around them, those conditions will be shaped by the Black Lives Matter movement and by those activists. And I think that the extent to which different activists and social movements will shape that administration should it come to pass, I think that's going to be pretty extensive. I think that's going to be the source of of new ideas and of, of some of that policy agenda. And so I think that when we look at what an administration might look like. It is important what what the candidates value and it's important what their judgment is like. But it's also part of a much larger political environment and every new administration is looking, essentially they're looking for coalition partners and they're looking for how to build up a political movement. So Harris is likely
0: to play a major role in shaping the Democratic Party's platform well into the future. And she could very well lead the party's ticket as soon as 2024. The Democrats are already struggling to cope with a growing gulf between centrist figures like Biden and an increasingly vocal
2: progressive wing. How will Harris impact the two sides? The most convincing thing I've heard about this, I heard on the radio this morning, and I think essentially what she does is she sort of kicks it down at least four more years, maybe more. I do think it's interesting that in the selection of Harris, someone who's kind of in the prime part of her life to run for for president in the next decade, that we're looking at the potentially kind of the future of one of the two major parties in this selection. At the same time, I, I don't think that this settles the fight, as you said, between the more establishment wing and the more progressive wing. I don't see this being kind of the last stand, it'll depend on a couple of things. One thing that that I see that Harris brings to the table that is not different from where the Democratic Party has been in previous decades, but is sort of moving in a new direction is her embrace. I mean, she's embraced a, like a very generous benefits package for Americans during COVID. Um, she has emphasized you know, maternal health and, and maternal mortality and those kinds of social supports. Will that form the basis of a kind of coalition with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that's not so tenuous? I, I think that's not totally clear, in part because the nature of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is still not totally clear. You've, I think, kind of three central figures who all mean different things in politics. You have Bernie Sanders, who's very much this sort of firebrand um, rally kind of guy. You have Warren, who's very much a policy wonk, Elizabeth Warren. And you have Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. And she strikes me as someone who is actually a pretty pragmatic dealmaker. And if, if that's the future of how the progressive wing of the party is going to go, then I think you're going to see a lot of back and forth, it's not going to be as exciting. And you sort of see the party drift to the left, it would be my would be my guess. But it could also be that there are some really irreconcilable viewpoints about how much the system needs to change. And that that becomes, you know, a very tense presidential primary or race for House Speaker or something in the future.
0: Julia, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Julia Azari, an associate professor of political science at Marquette University and a frequent contributor to Vox and 538. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira bay Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Broussalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.